I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read in a moment verses 8 through 15. Page 1401 in the Pew Bible. Before we read it, let me say a word about how I am choosing texts for this series because there are dozens of texts that you could choose on baptism, aren't there? And we're going to spend only four weeks on this, I believe, and so how to choose four focuses out of the many, many texts is a great challenge. Well, I am very influenced by my own background here in which texts I choose. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church and I learned in training union on Sunday nights and Sunday school on Sunday mornings certain ways to defend believers' baptism over against infant baptism. And when I went away to seminary and then to graduate school, I found that these particular ways were not sufficient. For example, I learned to show that when you read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, all of the baptisms are baptisms of believers. There are no examples of infant baptism in the New Testament. And I learned to say that, not only that, but when baptism is commanded, it's commanded in connection with Faith, rather than the other way around. And so I would say, you see, the proper order is faith and then baptism. Now, that narrative defense of believers' baptism is valid up to a point. But what was pointed out to me frequently was something like this. Well, of course... In the New Testament, what you see is believer's baptism because all the New Testament is recording is first generation evangelism of adults. And therefore, the only baptism you're going to see is the baptism that would follow the conversion of people who are making decisions for Christ. And nobody believes that you should baptize some adult before they believe. And so all of your cataloging of instances are pointless because the issue is not whether adults who are evangelized and believe should subsequently be baptized. Everybody agrees with that who's a Christian. The point is, what about the children then born to those people? The second generation. Should they then have a sign for being born into a covenant family the way... The Old Testament children born into covenant families received a sign, namely circumcision. And then the argument becomes the parallel between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. And so if we're going to make any headway in coming to our own settled conviction about whether infant baptism is appropriate or whether believer's baptism is the biblical way. We have to tackle the issue at the level of theological reflection on that kind of parallel between circumcision and baptism. Now, we're going to do that this morning. It's weighty. It will require you to keep your thinking hats on 
And our key text will be Colossians. I choose Colossians because there is in Colossians a verse and a phrase within a verse that for probably, say, from 1968 until 74, when my faith was most under challenge in all of my schooling and I was surrounded mainly by non-Baptists in my schooling, this verse and this phrase prevented me from being persuaded with regard to infant baptism. So you can ask, hmm, I wonder what verse he's talking about and which phrase, and we'll read it and eventually get to it. Verse 8 through 15 of Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I hope you don't miss that. That's not my sermon, but that'd be a good one. What an awesome phrase. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus. And in him, you have come, you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Father, as we try to unpack some of these verses, I pray for your help. Protect me from error and from imbalance, I pray. And guard your people and give them a heart to hear truth and to detect anything that would lead astray. And so build us up in your most holy word and make us strong and make us humble and make us wise unto salvation. And fit us, Lord, more fully this morning for living a life that will please you, will attract people to Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1562 as a kind of broad-based summary of the Reformed faith. Um, It's been said that the, the intimacy of Martin Luther and the charity of Philip Melanchthon and the fire of John Calvin are all brought together and stirred into this great historic Catechism of the Christian faith, the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's a beautiful and very sound document. I love it. I love the first question especially. But it is in defense of infant baptism, and therefore I stumble over question number 74. And I'll read you the answer to the question so that you can hear, because this is in essence the foundation of infant baptism as it's been practiced by Presbyterians and the Reformed churches and Methodists and Congregationalists, not so much 
um, Lutherans and Catholics because they have a different slant on things, putting a much higher premium on the saving work of baptism than any of these other Reformed communities do. Question 74. Are infants also to be baptized? Answer. Yes. For since they, as well as their parents, belong to the covenant and the people of God, and both redemption from sin and the Holy Ghost who works faith are through the blood of Christ promised to them, no less than to their parents. I think that is profoundly wrong. That statement. That it is promised to them. The blood of Christ and its effective work is promised to them no less than to their Christian believing parents. I've lost the place here. Let's, we're going to pick this up. It's a long sentence. They are also by baptism as a sign of the covenant to be grafted in to the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers as was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, in place of which the New Testament baptism is appointed. So it's very clear now. This, If you can get a handle on this, then you'll understand where the most responsible uh, defenders of infant baptism are coming from. And I have to confess quite openly that almost all of my theological heroes believe in infant baptism. I just think they're all wrong. On that issue, but I have lots of friends and lots of dead friends who defend these things. Now, here is the essence of the defense. They say there's a correspondence between the Old Testament circumcision, which was given to all the children born into a covenant Jewish family. Bring that over. Baptism replaces the circumcision and therefore, as a child is born into a Christian covenant family, they should not be denied the sign of the covenant, which is now baptism rather than circumcision. Now, before we dig in here to the relevant verses, 11 and 12, I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. You can take a tree, walk right up to it and get so close, you say, it's a leg. And not only miss the forest, but the tree. You gotta get some distance to kinda know if you've got a rainforest underneath you. And this text from verse 8 to 15 is one colossal rainforest of solid gospel timber. And I don't wanna ride over it too lightly and just talk about the nitty gritty issue of baptism without setting this contextual stage. So, Let's notice four things. Two things that Christ did for us historically, objectively, outside of ourselves. And two things that he did internally, spiritually. Number one, the first thing he did for us in verse 14 was destroy the enemy of our indictment in the courtroom of God. Let's read this 14. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, this is a glorious 
timber of gospel truth. Everybody in this room has offended against the law of God. We have not obeyed in all that we should. And on the desk in front of the judge of the universe, there lies a portfolio for every person in this room with page after page after page of failed decrees which have become, therefore, hostile to us and are the indictment of our lives in the presence of God, leaving us without any hope before a just judge. Except the hope of verse 14. Namely, Christ canceled that debt and he took all those hostile decrees against us, saying guilty, 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 and in his own body nailed them to the cross. So if anybody should ever call God into question for letting sinners like us go free forever, God would not have to say, well, sins aren't so bad and you can sweep them under the rug and we can let bygones be bygones. He would never answer like that. He would say, I take sin very seriously and every infringement of my law receives its just recompense and either it will be paid in hell or it has been paid at the cross of my son's death and therefore anybody who believes in him is free for his sake and not because sin is small. And so when it says he nailed the law He nailed the law, these decrees, to the cross. He means every word of the Bible that indicts you as a guilty, condemned sinner has been fulfilled for you by Jesus. And that's worth celebrating. So that's the first gospel timber I wanted you to see in this forest. The second one is in verse 15. The second enemy that Christ defeats on the cross is not now the certificate of debt, but the devil and all his hosts. It says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him or through it. Could be either one, the cross or Christ. When Christ died, Satan was defeated. The decisive, lethal blow was struck against our enemy. Now, I say it like that. Decisive, lethal blow. Because those of you who are biblically oriented have going in your mind right now. Wait a minute. What about Ephesians 6, 12? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, same two words as here, principalities and powers, world rulers of this present darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. How come if they're done for at the cross, I got to wrestle? If Jesus wrestled, why do I have to wrestle? If he defeated them, what am I doing fighting them? So I come back to the way I said it. I think what is being taught here is not that Satan goes out of existence at the cross, 
or that devils go out of existence at the cross, but rather in a war, there are certain battles that are virtually the end of the war. And there may be skirmishes and cleanup operations afterwards that you have to be careful about. But if the bomb has been dropped on the enemy, and it's a decisive, powerful, death-dealing bomb against the forces, you fight in a very different way than if you wondered if you were going to win and if the enemy really was going to get the upper hand in the end. And we now engage in our wrestling with spiritual enemies, not at all wondering, ah, could they really defeat me? Could I be destroyed? In Christ, you cannot be destroyed because they have been functionally destroyed. They cannot destroy believers. They can rough you up pretty bad. In fact, according to Revelation 12, they can kill you. Which is a relatively minor thing judged over against whether they can send you to hell or not. They cannot do that because the only hook that the devil and all of his forces can get in you that would drag you down to hell is the hook of your sin. The only thing that sends people to hell is sin, not Satan. You know, I've told you this before. It's not green things on the ceiling at night. It's not voices. It's not some horrid, psychotic illness. Those things don't send anybody to hell. Sin sends people to hell. And if our sins are nailed to the cross and Satan is watching this happen, he's losing the one weapon that can destroy us. So all he can do now is beat us up. He cannot kill you ultimately. He knows this and therefore he's very viciously angry about it. And he does all the damage he can do. But if you know your inheritance... If you know what Christ did for you and you clothe yourselves with the blood of Christ, like it says, they, they defeated the devil through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they did not count their lives worthy even unto death. In Revelation 12, 11. If you have Christ around you, then you enter the day to wrestle with the powers of darkness, knowing that one little word will fell him. That's the second triumph that I wanted you to see. Those are two things done outside of you before you ever came on the scene of history that was done at the cross. Sins were nailed to the cross, debt was paid, and the Satan received his decisive lethal blow. Now, two other things before we look at this circumcision issue. Inside of us, God is also at work. Verse 13. Two images... One is resurrection, the other is circumcision. Let's read resurrection. Verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How did you become a saved believer with the hope of eternal life? This verse says, you became that way because God raised you from the dead. You will give Him praise that He is due when you know how you got to be you. You got to be your new believing self because 
when you were dead, spiritually dead, unresponsive, caring not at all for spiritual things, seeing nothing beautiful in Christ and nothing believable in the gospel, one night or one day with a radio, with a tract, with a book, with a friend, with a preacher, with a night sky, God has a thousand ways to be gracious. Something happened and suddenly you were alive to spiritual things. Life was serious. Hell and heaven were real. Death was close. God was unavoidable. And the gospel began to radiate with self-authenticating beauty. And you believed. That's the way people get saved. So mark the third thing in the text, the third gospel timber in this forest. Not only did he nail your sin to the cross, not only did he defeat the devil, but he raised you from the dead if you're a believer. And finally, before we look at circumcision, number two, this issue of circumcision is one of the things that he did in you. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this is this is a little more difficult to get our hands around because it's language and it's concepts that are sort of foreign to us. And yet, it's not that hard, is it? He's saying another way to think about what happened inside of you, besides saying you were raised from the dead, is that there was an old you, rebellious and self-asserting and self-reliant and unbelieving, and this old you lived itself out through the body and therefore brought this body, hands and legs and sexual organs and eyes and ears, into the service of that old rebellious self. And there's a sense, Paul says, in which therefore this old body's got to be cut off. So what's being severed here is not any foreskin, but rather the old self and all that the old self did with the body. That's cut off. And what's left now is the new self that's been raised from the dead. So that's the image. He talks about the body of the flesh being removed. And I think that's simply the body in the sense that the body has become the servant of the flesh, the old man, the old self, the rebellious, unbelieving us. And so there's two ways to describe the miracle. Let's back up and get all four of these before us now and then close in on verses 11 and 12. The, the rainforest here that we just took a big 747 flight over has these timbers in it. Christ canceled your debt and nailed your sins to the cross. Secondly, Christ dealt a decisive lethal blow to your great spiritual enemies, the principalities and powers and the devil. All of that done in history objectively, outside of you, before you ever came on the scene. And now, in verses 11 and 13, we close in on, well, what did he do in me? 
If that's what he did for me, what did he do in me? First answer, he raised you from the dead. Second answer, he circumcised your heart or cut away the old man and left there the new, beautiful, believing self. Now, we've gotten real close to this issue of circumcision right here. And so let's move right in on its relation to baptism. Let's read verses 11 and 12. I said there was a key verse that kept me. It's verse 12. We'll look at the key phrase in a minute. In him, I'm starting at 11, in him, that is Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, here's the connection. Watch it closely because you've got to make a choice here about your understanding of baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism. That's a close connection with verse 11. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, there's a close link here between verses 12 and 11. I do not dispute that. The circumcision of verse 11 and the baptism of verse 12 are linked in one sentence very closely. This is a key foundational text for the Heidelberg Catechism and all those who believe in infant baptism. Here's my question. What sort of circumcision is being spoken about in verse 11? There's a key phrase here. makes all the difference in the world. And the phrase is without hands. You see it? Without hands, we have received a circumcision. That means that Paul is talking in verse 11 about a spiritual counterpart to the Old Testament physical ritual. In the Old Testament, there was a physical act for the boys called circumcision given to every one of them born into a Jewish family, giving a sign that they now belong to the covenant people. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what's the New Testament counterpart to that? The answer would be verse 11, and he would say the counterpart to that is the spiritual circumcision in the cutting off of the body of flesh. That's the counterpart. There are two circumcisions. There's the first Earthly, physical circumcision by which a child is signified as having been born physically into a Jewish family. And then, in verse 11, there is a spiritual reality he's calling circumcision, which is not made with hands. The point is, it's spiritual. It's inner. It isn't anything you can do with your hands. And that's the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament circumcision. Then, in verse 12, baptism is brought in as the external expression of that spiritual circumcision. Now, I have just made a very fateful choice and suggestion to you. Because that's the end of infant baptism, if that's true. Verse 12 draws a parallel between that spiritual circumcision made without hands 
and baptism. <coughs> Why is that important? Because what's being signified here is that the New Testament people of God are coming into existence in a way different than the way the Old Testament people of God came into existence. Every child born into a Jewish home became, by virtue of his physical descent, a part of the Jewish community and the covenant people. Now, as you move toward the New Testament, here's the key theological question. Is the continuity between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism a clean, clear, simple, one-for-one continuity that preserves all that was meant here for here? And I'm arguing from verse 11 that there is a profound discontinuity as well as continuity. And the discontinuity is this. As Old Testament circumcision moves into New Testament reality, verse 11 says, the way we experience it now is without hands. Through the cutting off of the old man. It's an internal, spiritual, miraculous coming into being of new people. And this is the way the new people of God, the new covenant community, is being formed by spiritual resurrection, spiritual regeneration, spiritual circumcision. And then you raise the question of baptism. So what is baptism then if it's linked with circumcision? And the answer is, it is an external expression of what's really happening in the circumcision of verse 11, not the circumcision of Genesis 17, which has already been transferred into the spiritual realm through verse 11. Now, I still haven't mentioned the phrase that was so powerful in keeping me a Baptist for six years of higher education in pedo-Baptist schools. And it's the phrase through faith in verse 12. We're almost done here. Let me just try to wrap this up so you can see this is a confirming phrase for what I just argued for in the way baptism relates to circumcision. Namely, it's an expression of spiritual circumcision, not physical circumcision, and therefore assumes the work of the Holy Spirit, which is experienced and appropriated by faith. And infants can't do that. So, let's read verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. This is why we immerse, by the way. I'm not making too much of that yet. But the symbolism of burial and resurrection is is the second most strong reason for why we immerse. And the first is because the word baptizo means immerse. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, get this. Watch this very closely. If you want a verse to talk with about your friends on this, this is the one. Because through faith modifies... Where would you put it if you were diagramming this sentence, all you grammar buffs? If you were, if you were trying to figure out where does this phrase fit... Well, let's just keep it close. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which, the which refers to baptism, in baptism you were raised with him through faith. Let's just say that over and over. In baptism you were raised with him through faith. In baptism you were raised with him through faith. Now, I, I read that and nothing to this day has been able to shake me from the simple interpretation that baptism is a dying and rising with Christ through faith. I'm just stuck with that. I, I've never... I, my professor Leonard Guppelt, sitting across the table at a Catholic monastery with 12 Lutherans and me. And I put it on the table. Tell me how you interpret this. And there was no answer except to say, well, that's only referring to uh, first-generation evangelism. That's not a fundamental definition of baptism. It's just what is true if a person has been converted as an adult. Then you can understand baptism that way. Well, you got to make a choice. Is this a fundamental definition of baptism, or is this an incidental description of the way baptism works for those who get saved as adults. And I think, given its connection with verse 11, let me just sum it up now, we'll be done. Start back with the Old Testament. Circumcision is given in the Old Testament to signify externally the participation in the external people of God. Many unbelievers, Ishmael and Esau, were circumcised. They were not children of God. They were children of the flesh. And Romans 9, 8 says the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of promise are reckoned as seed. So circumcision was broad in its usefulness of including all those born into the covenant people understood externally as the Jewish nation, and God blessed them, believer and unbeliever, in many, many ways. Now, you come into the New Testament realm, are we to think of the people of God today in those terms primarily? And the answer is, according to verse 11, that what is happening in the gathering of the new people of God is a spiritual miracle You can call it resurrection, or you can call it circumcision. You can call it being raised from the dead, or you can call it cutting away the old self of the flesh. That's got to happen to be a part of the new people of God. And then the question arises, and how do you signify that in an ordinance? And the Bible says, do it with baptism when they show by their faith that that has happened to them. And that's why we're Baptists. Because a child can't do that yet. When I say child, I mean infant. Where a child gains the capacity to do that is difficult. And we got our problems in that regard of where the age of accountability comes and when you should baptize children. And we, we constantly are thinking that through. But what seems clear is that baptism is an outward expression of the faith that I have died and I've risen or I've been circumcised spiritually. So the real counterpart 
to Old Testament circumcision is New Testament spiritual circumcision, not baptism. And baptism signifies that spiritual reality. Now, let me let me do this. We're done, and I, I want to kind of gather you in with my arms like this and say, there are unbelievers in this room probably, and the reason I spent half this message on the forest before I got to the trees was so you hear the gospel, the good news that Christ died for sinners, he nailed sin to the cross, that Christ died to destroy the devil, and that Christ went inside of us to raise us from the dead, and he went inside of us to circumcise the old person off, and right now... God's at work in this room, and if you find yourself being drawn to see and believe, close with Christ now and enjoy being grafted into Christ and made part of the new people of God, and then be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You can either talk to one of us at the end of the service about your desire to do that, or you can take that little tear-off portion and check. I want to express my faith through baptism. Or you could just show up at the class, which is going to be through those double doors to the right next Sunday at 9 o'clock on baptism for two weeks to get people ready. Or if you want to call us on the phone. But don't. If God is moving, if you feel yourself being taught and persuaded by the Holy Spirit that these things are so, and you haven't been baptized as a believer The Bible says you should do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would gather people to yourself miraculously. I pray that you'd work resurrection and circumcision. And then in due time, I pray that many would walk through these waters of burial and resurrection to signify that it has happened to me. And I want to, by faith, die and by faith, rise through these emblematic waters of baptism. Lord, be at work among us, I pray, for the glory of your name. Through Christ, I pray. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.